Welcome to the Florence Guild podcast, a collection of conversations with business and cultural leaders delivering insight into future approaches to business and life. Through conversations in an array of styles, from salon talks to lifestyle events, through to intimate facilitated lunches and dinners, Florence Guild promotes encounters, satiates curiosity, and allows insight into future approaches to business and life. The following Florence Guild conversation was recorded live at Work Club Melbourne, Australia's most forward-thinking workspace. This episode's conversation is about anti-disciplinary approaches in politics. Governments and institutions are becoming less relevant, so what's the next order? To answer that question, we have Adam A. Jacobi, democracy warrior, serial innovator, with a 20-year global history of starting fast-growth businesses. Outspoken and opinionated, with a revolutionary bent, Adam has a Master's of Entrepreneurship and Innovation and has studied at the Judge Business School, Cambridge University. Adam is the founder and chief steward of political movement MyVote, which was the finalist in the 2016 Singularity University Grand Global Challenge Awards and featured in the book Democracy Squared. Redesigning Democracy, the My Vote Intervention, a Florence Guild conversation with Adam A. Jacobi. Before I get started, a couple of things. Um, for better or for worse, for the last year or so, I'm getting... Um, Uncomfortably familiar with giving speeches, but I much prefer to have conversations. So let's make this a conversation, okay? If you have something to say, say it. You don't have to put your hand up, this isn't class. Let's have a conversation as equals about the way we make decisions, about how we govern ourselves, about how we have or don't have self-determination in our current system, and how we might do something about all of that. So what I want to do, I'm going to, some of you who may have seen some of the speeches um, know that Traditionally, we like to start with three questions. I'm going to do the same thing here because it just helps contextualise the conversation. So the first thing I'd like to ask all of you, and don't say it out loud, just I want you to think about it, um, is I want you to ask the, answer three questions. Do you believe that there is any worldview or ideology that has the answer for every challenge that confronts us? So that's question number one. And that might be political, it might be religious, it might be social, whatever. Question number two is do you believe that your government provides equal access to all citizens. And the third question I want you to ask yourself is do you believe that your government represents the will of the people on every policy issue every time? If you answered no to any one of those three questions, you have to start thinking about the quality of your democracy. If you answered no to more than one of those three questions, you have to acknowledge that you don't actually live in a democracy. Democracy is about, fundamentally, it's about the enactment of the will of the people. What we have come to understand is that democracy and politics are the same thing and they're not the same thing. They're fundamentally different things. Politics is the mechanism by which we allow people to make decisions on our behalf because that's the system that we have been brought up to understand was appropriate. Democracy is about your birthright. It's your voice. It's your ability to have a say in the way that your life works every day in a variety of ways. Five and a half, six years ago, somewhere in that general space, um, we took an entrepreneurial hat and turned it to democracy and we asked ourselves a couple of questions. The first question we asked ourselves was, if you were going to create democracy as an entrepreneur, as a product that you were going to put into the market, 
what would it need to look and feel like and behave like and what would the UX need to be and how would it behave so that A, people wanted to buy it, B, they wanted to tell their friends about it and C, that they would be loyal to it. And the second question we asked ourselves is how would you create democracy, how would you invent it as a product if it was being invented after the internet had already been invented? And when you ask yourself those two questions, the product that you invariably end up putting together looks fundamentally different to the product that we are saddled with today. So, and that's, that's not the fault of the, of, of the current system. The current system served a purpose for a really long time. It did a good job in, an, in a period where it was impossible for people to have one-to-many, many-to-many, and many-to-one conversations. Technology didn't allow it. And so the best we had was this ability to say, you're the best of us, please go and represent us in parliament. But we're so far beyond that place now in the world. We're at a place where we can digitally immediately understand what millions of people think at the same time about one issue right now and now and now. And if you're in an environment where you have that understanding, then there's actually no excuse not to enact the will of the people because there's no reason for you not to know what it is. The problem with our system now is we're, in, we're entrenched in this ideological binary political argument of left versus right, which doesn't even make sense anyway when you think about it now because they're basically the same thing. But left versus right, um, and both claim to represent you and none of them ask you ever what you think about anything. So we started turning our attention to that problem. And what we found was in fact, although it took five and a half years to get to a point where it was a product worthy of releasing, it's not that difficult a problem to solve if you understand the acupuncture points that are causing the problem and eroding our democracy. So one of the things we say, and again, feel free to talk, argue, disagree, whatever. One of the things that we say are that there are a few interventions that had to take place in democracy for it to work in its genuine intended form. The first intervention that had to take place is around ideology. And just as I asked you the first question, do you think there's an ideology that can solve for every problem? The reality is the right isn't always right and the left isn't always right. Nobody has all the answers to all the problems. I've had, for better or worse, um, a 20, nearly 25 year history of startup entrepreneurship. I've had businesses all over the world. Big businesses, small businesses, some have been very successful, some have not. But the one thing that is consistent is you can't run good businesses without making good decisions, and you can't make good decisions without a solutions orientation. If you are not actually interested in what are the facts and what is the information that is pertinent to this issue so that we collectively can make the best decision, then there is no way that you'll continually and consistently make good decisions. What you invariably do is put an ideological lens and say, well, we believe, yeah, I'm left, so I'll put the left hat on, we believe, inequality and we believe that everybody should have access and we believe and therefore the solution must always look like that no matter whether or not that square peg is going to fit in that round hole and if I put the right hat on the right hat saying we believe in free market and we believe that capitalism will always solve the problem and that you just allow people to go on their way and the cream always rises and the rest well they just have to get better at what they're doing and that either of those two ideas is always right is a nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. So the first intervention point that my vote makes is it says you need to have a political environment that is free from ideology. It recognises that there are choices and sometimes this choice will make more sense and sometimes this choice will make more sense. 
but you have to recognise that you can't start from here or here all the time. The second intervention that we make is one about an informed citizenry. And you can't have genuine democracy if you don't have an informed citizenry. Because what you're effectively doing is asking people to make decisions about where we should go and not have the first fucking idea where we are. So how does that work? I don't know any facts, I don't have any data, I don't know what's true and what's not true, but I'm empowered enough to make a decision. Doesn't make any sense, does it? So, you know, as a parent, I've got four kids, and as a parent, I look at my children, and what you try and do is help them make their own decisions. But you don't do it by just saying, do you want to jump off the couch onto the concrete or not? You go, do you want to really, you're standing up there, do you really want to jump off the couch? Because if you jump off the couch, this is what's going to happen. It's your choice, but you need to understand what's going to happen when you do it, right? It's the same thing in politics. We're asked to make choices without any conversation about what happens if we make that decision. And is this a short-term solution or is it a long-term solution? So that's another intervention we make. The third critical choice and intervention, acupuncture point we made into democracy is about destinational approach, um, which is really important. So if you think about the way our system works, we work on a system that is based on an election and this fallacy that you know an election makes a democracy. It doesn't. They're, they're completely different things. An election is a moment in time, a window of time, in which we allow somebody to represent us and control the power of decision-making on everybody's behalf. But the policies that get made in that period, now that period will differ state, federal, country to country, but whether you're in power for two years, three years, four years or more, the reality is you will make thousands and thousands and thousands of decisions on behalf of the constituency and you don't know what the constituency wants and the constituency doesn't know what you're going to do on those things before they vote for you. But we're meant to believe that this is somehow representative. So what we do at my vote is we start to say, well, Rather than this legislative binary thing which says, do you support the bill? Yes. Do you not support the bill? No. And it's worth saying that most of there are tremendous uh, democracy warriors all over the world. And we're, we have a really terrific relationship with the vast majority of, of the major ones. Um, so there's a Slack channel for kind of um, the, the senior people of all the democracy movements around the world and we share information and help each other out. And we all ultimately want the, the same thing. We, we have a different interpretation about how to do it, but, but we all are genuinely there for the right reasons. Um, but when you look at all of them, the one thing that makes my vote distinct is that we're not having a binary conversation. So we're not asking you to choose this or this. What we do within our model, some of you might be members, some of you might have used it, some of you might have voted already, is you'll notice that there are four choices, not two choices. And you'll notice that those four choices are not binary. So you can choose none of them, some of them or all of them. Because the question that we ask is fundamentally different. We're not asking, do you support the legislation and lock ourselves into a majority position that is about a legislation that perhaps the vast majority of people haven't read. The most important thing is that we ask people a higher question about where we want to go as a people, where we want to go as a nation. So the last vote that just closed three days ago, four days ago, whatever it was, um, was about it, um, our energy policy. Now the energy policy discussion, if you'd listen to it in the existing political landscape, is about coal versus renewables. There's no conversation about nuclear, whatever you might believe about nuclear, there's no conversation about it. Um, and it is framed as a coal good, bad issue, renewables, expensive, not expensive issue. 
But the reality is that that presumes that everybody understands enough to make that decision, and it also presumes that none of the other options are valid of a conversation. What my vote does is talk about where do you want to go as a country. So the vote that we put forward to the 1,300 people that voted on this one um, was, do you believe your government should prioritise the environment? Or do you think it should prioritise international obligations? Or do you think it should prioritise the cost of energy to the consumer? Or do you think it should prioritise energy base load for the economy? They're fundamentally different questions. That's about how we structure ourselves as a country. And from there, when you know where the people want to go, you can start writing policy to get you there. You know, politics is still the only ecosystem in the world where you write the contract before you know what the deal is. You know, as a businessman for 20 odd years, I never walked into my lawyer's office and said, hey, Joe, I need you to write me a contract. What's it about? I don't know. Where's it meant to take us? I'm not entirely sure. Just write the contract. But that's what we do in politics. We have legislation and we don't have the first fucking clue where it's taking us. But we've got to agree to that policy. We've got to agree to the legislation. Do you support it? Do you not support it? We need to have conversations about where we go. And then we need to write legislation that takes us where the majority of people want to be. That's democracy. Yeah. On the informed thing, I want to say one. So that's a big part of the information. So inside those destinations, and there are always four that we do on every policy, we do it in quite an interesting way, which I can take zero credit for because it was all of our policy and research people who brilliantly came up with this idea off the back of a 1979 New York University PhD mathematical paper. And the voting mechanism, this ability to go, well, I vote for none or some or all, enables a political movement to start with policy from a place of consensus. So if you look at our last vote that just closed, the two most popular frames had 88% support and 84% support. And then the next two had 24 and 19 or 15. So what it means is all of a sudden, right now under the current system, left and right, ALP versus Liberal, Red versus Blue, Dems versus Republicans, you have this situation where no matter what happens at the election, invariably half of the country is angry with you. And half of the country won't support the policy. And as soon as the policy is in by this government, the next government comes in and we're trying to get rid of that policy. We're in this cycle of stupidity that just never ends. Yeah. What we do is we start from a place that says 88% of you has said that you are happy to live with this as the priority for this country. So when you start writing legislation, that the people themselves have determined is the direction that they can live with, you start doing away with this adversarial nonsense. So that's really important. Underpinning the need for those four frames, which is built into our app, is the information provision, that idea that you have to be an informed citizen. So there are information packs for all four frames that are completely objective, and I'll, I won't go to it here because we have limited time, but afterwards, or you can go to the website and see all of this stuff. Um, Vote.myvote.org. <laughs> from, the, from the comms director, there you go. Um, I know, I always forget to say it. So um, you can go and look, but effectively what happens is whether, you, let's say you, you, know, you, you open up the energy vote, you see the first frame is environmental. There'll be, you'll be able to consume information. In fact, you have to consume information. Um, and you can say, look, you know, I'm time poor or I'm not really interested in this issue, but I'm here to vote. So I'm just going to read the pricey dot point version. Here are the things I need to know about what taking an environmental priority frame means. You could get to that stage and go, I think that feels right, but I'd like to know a little bit more about that. Cascade down and I can now see a four or five page overview. Data, statistics, what different groups around the world think about this and have said about it. Okay, I'm not sure about that statistic. I'm not sure about that piece of um, data. 
We're the only group in the world. Where does all that information come from? I'm going to get there in two seconds. Um, we're the only group in the world that then makes all of the documents that made up those research frames available to everybody in its complete form. So in the energy bill, we had 94 citations, pieces of research, and you could, if you wanted to, read all 94. I don't know of anybody that did other than our own policy people, but you could if you really wanted to. So you can go as deep or as shallow as you want, but if you do not read all four frames at the base level, your voting light never goes on. You never have an opportunity to cast your vote because we say, if you choose not to inform yourself, we choose not to listen to you. <laughs> really important. We'll get, you know, we have to start combating this fake news bullshit. And not, not because Trump's talking about it, but because actually it erodes democracy. Now he talks about it as being a problem, but he is the beneficiary of, of the existence of fake news. But in reality, if people actually understood what they were voting on, the votes would be different largely. And we're starting to see some of that. And thank God we saw something different in France because um, it, the, the election was so public and the positions were so out there that people had no confusion about what was real and what was not. And that makes a huge difference. The other thing that's worth saying um, that's important is it's all very well to change how you frame policy and how you vote and how you have a say. But if the movement itself doesn't strictly adhere to the majority position, then it means nothing. So the underlying principle of my vote is that we don't have policy until our members have voted and we have a majority position. And our majority isn't 51, our majority is 60%. If we don't get to a 60% supportive position for a destination, we do not have a policy. We have a second runoff and a third runoff, which are more complicated. I can talk to you about it later, or, or Joel can. Um, but so we're really about enacting the will of the people. And then, even if you can get to 60%, it doesn't make sense if the representation and the candidacy model doesn't actually uh, hold people to enacting that will. And so we have made contingencies and uh, interventions into those parts of the system as well. So for example, if you're a candidate, young man, you've decided to put your hand up, you come to us and say, I'd like to run for my vote. At this stage, we have a number of people who want to run for my vote at the next federal election, including two former Australians of the year, but we can't appoint them because that would be undemocratic. So they will throw their hat in the ring like everybody else will throw their hat in the ring. And if people inside their state choose to elect them as the representative, then they'll be the representative. But let's say that you get elected and you're now going to represent the state of Victoria in the federal Senate, you're going to run for the election. You're going to sign a contract with us. And that contract is going to say a few things. The first thing is, it's going to say is you are never allowed to accept corporate money or vested interest money ever during your campaign or in your time in office. My vote is the only party that has banned corporate dollars, full stop. It is in our constitution, we are not allowed to do it. Fully donor funded, by the people, for the people. The second thing that you're going to agree to is during a vote or before a vote, you're never allowed to talk about your own personal opinion. So on the energy mix, before we go to the people or before that vote closes, you can't say, hey, I'm going to vote on pricing as the priority model. Afterwards, you can say 72% of you wanted to go this way and this is the majority position. Personally, I voted for that, but my job is to represent you in parliament and that's what I'm going to do. But before, you're not allowed to talk about it because you're not allowed to prejudice the outcome. The third thing you're not allowed to do is you're not allowed to serve more than two terms. Democracy and representative government is not about career building. It's a civic service. You are there to serve the people and then you need to get the hell out and let somebody else do it. 
And so our model says you have a two-term maximum, and if you're lucky enough to serve two terms with MIVO, you must, under our constitution, serve as a mentor to the next generation of representatives that get elected. The fourth thing you're going to agree to, and this is where it gets sexy in my opinion, is you're going to agree that the, the campaign financing that we give you to get you elected, which as an independent could cost $2 million in Victoria for you to win a Senate seat, is a notional loan. If you stay within the rules and you always adhere to the majority position and you don't talk about your view before a vote and you don't take corporate money, we'll never ask for that loan back. But if you breach our rules, we are coming after every last cent of it. The other thing is you're going to pre-sign a resignation letter to the Senate and the council is going to hold it. And if you step outside the rules, we're going to have you fired, we're going to resign you, and then we're going to bankrupt you. So we're not joking when we say that you're going to represent the will of the people. There are a lot of people who are saying you can't do it, AEC doesn't allow it. We contend otherwise and we're happy to go to the High Court and find out. The end of the day our model is fundamentally about enacting the will of the people and if there is an argument that holding a stick to candidates to actually do what their constituency wants then I want that same bar held to every existing politician and we'll no longer have a parliament. Okay, so, so that's the underlying principle of what we're doing. So where is my vote now? I'll give you three more minutes and then I'm done, no, I promise. All right. it's okay. How many minutes do I have? So who are we and where are we? So we've been, we've been building the reinvention of democracy for about five and a half, six years. We've been a not-for-profit organisation for a, about a year, 13, 14 months. Uh, we've been a functioning app available for people to vote on for about three months. There are currently 23 countries who want to start my vote chapters. Um, we have thousands of members, which is pleasing. Um, we are getting enormous support from Silicon Valley, Hollywood, uh, and the philanthropic community around the world. Um, as we talked about earlier, um, we have some fairly lofty goals uh, around what we think we can achieve, but really this is about the emancipation of all of us, for all of us. So this came about because my children weren't going to have a voice in the world in which they were growing up, which is why I turned my attention to it. But it's not just about my children, it's about, it's about us and your children and their children. Um, if the, if if the way that we choose to govern ourselves continues to vest power in people who don't listen and don't actually care about what we want, then the outcome is not going to be good for any of us. So the best illustration of that I can give, and will be the last thing I can say, um, is in about 20 odd days, my grandmother's going to turn 100 years old. Yay. Thank you. Let's wait till she gets there. So, um, so when you talk to her about the world in which she grew up and you ask her about what it was like, everything's changed. Transport's changed, travel's changed, work has changed, family life has changed, television, technology, entertainment, um, our understanding of science and the world around us has changed. We're still governing ourselves under the same model as a hundred years ago. So the model in which we decide we should make communal decisions was built for a world that doesn't even exist anymore. And we think that that's okay. That's all from me. Thank you very much. Are there any questions? You had a question, did I answer your question? Um, no. The packaging of that information that, that gets sources. So how do we do it? Yeah. Right, okay. So thank you for that question. Um, so we have- Can I get you to um, repeat the question into the mic? 
Yes, yes. Communications boss. The, qu the question was, how do we package information so that it's fair and clear? Um, <laughs> and unbiased. Okay, so we have an eight-stage policy formation process. Um, pleasingly, this was the bit that took the longest to do, and it's the bit that a number of former politicians, including former prime ministers, have said, this is market best practice. This could actually work. Um, it starts with data. Okay, so right now, in a perfect world, if we had enough resource, um, we would have all of this in-house, but we don't at the moment. Eventually we will, but we don't. Um, and so it's partnership with a lot of external sources, universities and, and so forth, and you package data. So it's about where, how do you get peer-reviewed, factual, you know, market best practice research that is irrefutable. Where's that coming from? So it starts with getting the best, most current information. Then we have, and actually we can hand some of these out because I've got all of this in my bag just here. I'll give you everybody a copy of it. Then we have uh, stage two, which we called working groups. Working groups are non-permanent structures that are set up on a policy. You can go through my bag, mate. Sure. Yeah. Um, I know where you live. Um, <laughs> policy by policy, so oh, that <laughs> policy by policy, so that. Um, so as an example, if we were doing jobs policy question to the voters, we would put together a group of experts, domain experts in the space from outplacement agencies, jobs agencies, employers, et cetera, et cetera, unemployed groups, so that people who are actually living this policy every day can start to inform what the data tells us. And the reason we do that is 20 odd years as, a, as an entrepreneur and a CEO, I know that what the numbers tell me, what my CFO tells me the numbers are saying, is different to what's actually happening on the shop floor. And so it's really important to understand what those trends are saying, but it's also really to, important to understand why those things are happening. So you go to the people who are living it and you're saying, listen, if you turn the dial a little bit this way, it means this number of people aren't gonna be able to have access. If you turn it this way, it means that we are gonna have to retrain 150,000 staff. So you've got to understand what those implications are and the data never tells you those things. So they're working groups. After working groups, we go to what we call advisory committees of everything we've done, this is the thing I'm most proud of. Our advisory committees are permanent structures inside our organisation and they are written into our constitution. So they can never be taken away. The intent of those groups is to ensure that um, constituencies within our democracy that aren't usually um, allowed to have a voice on things that don't directly relate to them are at the table. So what you'll see in the documents you have around you is at the moment we have 10, but at the next council meeting, there'll be a call to expand to a few more. And they represent indigenous, LGBTI, gender equality, youth, elderly, rural, business, um, public servants, disabled, um, migrant communities. They're, they're the first group. So what it basically says is jobs policy. Here's what the data says. Here's what the people in the industry are saying to us. Now, indigenous community, what does all of that mean to you? Now that you've heard this, what does it mean to the Indigenous community? What does it mean for gender equality? What's that going to mean for the migrant community? And we, that starts to inform the thinking. Only once those three things have happened does it come to our policy makers to go, right, based upon all of that information, what are the four distinct destinations we can put in front of people knowing how they now relate to constituency, data and on the ground? After that, there are four layers of governance and ethics. So the first step is it needs to be signed off by our head of policy. The remit for that role, for it to be signed off, is that the information is current, it is peer reviewed, it is factual, 
and it can't be disputed. So you might have fringe groups that disagree with it, but it's, it's common understanding that this is right, yeah? Once that person signs it off, it goes to the ethics committee. The ethics committee's job is to make sure that the frames are written in such a way that they are objective. They're not leading, we're not writing it, so it's, oh, we're obviously trying to have people vote this way or that way. The, there's enough supporting data for all four frames. Um, they're given the same kind of weighting um, so that it's clear. It, we're really letting you make a choice for yourself. We're not loading the gun anyway. After the ethics committee, it comes to the governance committee. The governance committee's role, um, and it's worth saying that all of these groups are headed by our council members, which is our board. So once it goes to there, it goes to governance. Governance's role, the remit, is very simple. Is it constitutional for the country? So is it legal? Can we actually do it? Can we enact it? And the second thing is, does it meet our constitutional requirements? So our core five values, constitutional values, meritocracy, quality of opportunity, secularism, transparency and accountability. That's all we're about. So if it doesn't do those five things and it's not legal and it's not ethical in terms of its objectivity, you will never see it on the app. So it has to go through all of those and then after it's gone through governance, then the board has to sign it off. So there are eight steps before it ever reaches you guys to have a vote. Um, so it's a pretty comprehensive way of, of putting policy together and it's quite genuinely, yeah, it's quite genuinely intended um, to be overly thorough. Okay, so, so if the question is, what, how do you deal with human bias? Um, the answer is we can't do anything specifically about human bias, save for a couple of small interventions, which we hope help along the way. The first is that we're having a destinational conversation, which is really quite deliberate. So if I said to you, do you want to put environment first, which is the Greens policy, or do you want to put the economy first, which is the Liberal policy? It, that will immediately play to your bias, but we don't. What we talk about is a destination and a place that says, if you believe in an environmental view, this, this is what it means. Here are the pros and here are the cons. And we offer pros and cons on all four frames. And so we're, not, we're allowing you to make your own determination about what makes sense and what doesn't. And we're hoping that in time, by opening it up that way and not showing that there are, hey, there are 22 pros on this one and there are only three on this one, we're really quite careful about that, um, that people will start to move away from this idea that they self-identify as left or right. And there was a really fascinating Princeton study in the US around this, where everybody assumes that people in America identify as Republican or Democrat largely. Everybody thought it'd be sort of 85% would identify one way or the other. And in fact, that's not the case at all. So about 19% of people self-identify as Democrats, um, about 23% self-identify as Republicans, and everybody else self-identifies as moderates or centrists. Now, how that plays out in an election, that's a different conversation. But if that is in fact the case, then the vast majority of people are in the middle and they are just looking for the pros and cons and the facts. And the people on the extremes who are gonna vote Liberal and Labor anyway will continue to do that. Um, but the people in the middle are the ones who can now start to change the game. So that's the first point. The second point is that we can see how long you spend, not you personally, but we can see, for example, most people, you know, so for example, we can see the majority of our people are spending three minutes on this frame and 19 minutes on that frame. 
it's nowhere near that long. It's about, I think, six and a half minutes is the average for the whole process at the moment. But um, so we can see if there are, if, if our own audience tends to have a bias or where they're trying to learn from. We can see if people are going backwards and forwards to frames. So I've read that. Now I just, I want to go back and have that again. We can see if people come in and then don't vote and then come back again. So they're thinking about it, they're reading it. So we can make ongoing interventions to help for that. The other thing that's worth saying is that there, are, there is another bias that you haven't spoken about that we're well aware of, but again, is a resource constraint that we're gonna do something with as soon as we can. So the other thing is about education level um, and the ability to read. So our frames at the moment are text-based. Uh, they will not be text-based forever. In fact, there is an intention as soon as it's humanly possible to make them video-based because that's how we know most people consume and it does away with a lot of educational bias and socioeconomic bias and so forth. The other thing in the next iteration is that we'll be multi-language so that you can vote in a hundred different languages and you can see the frames as they are so that we can provide access appropriately. Um, so there are lots of ongoing accessibility things that we're working on, but this is the MVP. This is the first thing we could put in market with the donations that we've had to date, um, which have been about a million dollars since we started so far. Um, but you know, the conversations I'm having in the States now are in the hundreds of millions of dollars, in which case um, we're gonna be able to do the, the way it needs to be done. So, so there are some issues which in and of themselves will relate directly to a policy setting. And there are others, we have this conversation all the time. There are others, for example, which you can have an overarching energy issue, as we just have, that will now lead to other energy questions because we now know what the majority of people want. So if you've decided, as the constituency has, that they want to prioritise environment and um, international obligation, then the question is, well, how do we do that? Because there are lots of ways we can do that. So you just start drilling down to get a better understanding so that when the movement is there and looking at actual legislation, it has an understanding of the nuance that the current system doesn't allow. So even, even if we didn't drill down further, because we've offered four distinct choices, actually, I'm gonna use a different choice to, to, to give an example. So it's one that, that I apologize for those who have listened to any of the speeches and stuff, because it's one I use a bit, which is around asylum seekers. But it's really important because it illustrates the point well. So there is currently an idea in this country under our current system that you either want to protect the borders or you want to protect people. And it's impossible that you could want to do both of those things because you have no option to do both of those things. So you've got a group who's basically saying onshore. I personally support that, but that's my own personal view. Um, and then you've got another group of people who are saying, stop the boats. But what about people who go, well, you know what? I really think it's important that we protect our borders. There's a national security issue, but I also want to make sure that we're humane and we meet our obligations internationally and people are actually getting processed and they actually have a pathway either in or out and they're not indefinitely sitting in detention. But that policy outcome doesn't exist in Australia because the parties are looking for whatever they think will win them votes and that's too complex a conversation to have as a pitch. But when you ask questions that point you in destinational directions, what we're able to do if we ask that question is it might say, all right, well, 75% the majority of people want to protect the borders, but 71% want us to do it humanely. So now you can start looking at policy a little bit differently because you have a deeper understanding of what's actually important to people and you understand that it's not binary because what we have here is after every election, guarantee, it doesn't matter what it is, I implore you to have a look. Every state election, every local election, every federal election, the moment an election is over, the winner of the election walks up to a stage and claims a mandate. 
immediately claims the mandate. I can now do whatever the hell I want to do for the next X number of years, three or four, depending on state or federal, because I've won the election. That's not a mandate. A mandate is about, uh, you could only claim a mandate, and I've written articles about this, you can only claim a mandate if you have articulated every decision that you are going to make in the four years that you're in office, and you've articulated how you're going to decide what your answer is on every one of those things. And only if the people understand that they're the decisions you're going to make on every decision that you have to make, and then they vote for you, only then can you claim a mandate. But if you went into an election campaign talking about three things, then you only understand what people want on three things. And you only understand it as you presented it. You don't understand what's the second most important issue and the third most important issue and the fourth most important issue. So we, I can tell you the results on energy surprised everybody at my vote. None of us expected this outcome. So we thought for sure pricing, hip pocket, what it means to people when they have to pay their energy bills would be a huge player in this conversation, 24%. 88% want environment as the primary priority on our policy. 84 want international obligations. That is massively different to what we thought it was going to be. Equally, a couple of votes ago when we asked about politicians' pay and we provided a few different options, the default position that everybody expects given the way the media works is that everybody's going to go, oh, pay the bastards nothing. They don't deserve a bloody cent. That's not what happened. Overwhelmingly, 68.9% of people voted to pay politicians more, but give them no entitlements after they leave office. That is an incredibly enlightened position for a community to take. It says we recognise the challenge of the role and that it requires appropriate remuneration, but after you serve, you don't deserve anything from us because you're not serving the community anymore. We didn't expect that result either. And that's what we keep finding. When you actually ask a different set of questions, you'll be surprised what the community actually wants. And it's very measured and it's very reasonable. And it doesn't look particularly left. So you could argue if you only saw the environmental view that we've just got a bunch of lefties. But if you saw the poly pay one, you'd go, oh, well, they're all just fucking conservatives. They just want to pay politicians more. But this is the point. It's the same constituency voting, but they're actually looking at facts and data and making measured, considered, thoughtful decisions. That's what a democracy is meant to be about. It's a, it's a contest of ideas, you know? It's not a contest of power, which is what it is right now. I reckon I've said it in 20 media interviews so far in the last year. And three, we times, don't, a day on and three times a day on Twitter. We don't claim to have all the answers and we recognise our, our proposition is not perfect. But it is significantly better than what exists now and it is an evolution. The problem is we're in a fixed, entrenched position that nobody's prepared to move from, and democracy is evolutionary. Because as our capacity changes, so too do our, does our decision-making model need to change. What you're going to see in the next couple of iterations, and we'll make an announcement probably in the next couple of weeks, three weeks, four weeks, I would expect, he's looking at me very nervously. I'm not gonna say what it is, but we're going to make a really significant public announcement about an iterative change to the way our model is structured. It's just gone up to Council in the last week. There's overwhelming support to do it. Um, it dramatically changes the way that we engage on the ground. Um, and that's because even though we've spent five years thinking about it, now that we see it in practice, we're going, actually, there's a way to do it even better. And that's what we're going to do. So 
This isn't about going, all right, here's the thing we've done for 200 years. There's the new product, it's much better. Let's just put it in a box and call it what it is. We're going, all of us need to evolve this together. All of us need to be part of this conversation, yeah? And so in time, as we grow, as we have more members, those sorts of iterative changes will go to the people. We'll say, hey, here's an option. We could do this, what do you think? You know, one of the things we're talking about, which will probably go to the people as a technological innovation for V3 or four is AI. And so the way that AI will start to intersect or could intersect if people want it, is rather than having to worry about the individual bias of the person writing the information and sourcing the information, that we have AI bots who are out there constantly sourcing in all of the digital environment, the ecosystem, every new report about every policy matter. And every time there's a change, because there are a couple of interventions we made that we haven't spoken about. So as an example, that doesn't mean that it frames the debate. It means that it provides the data. So let's not get too concerned about that. People still need to figure out what the destinations are and stuff and analyze and it would still go through the working groups and the advisory committees and the governance and the ethics. But actually, how do you source all the information in the world that's available? Because there's stuff that's happening in other languages in other countries that this country might not be looking at when it's thinking about energy or housing or whatever else. We all live in our own bubble, but if a bot can go out there and find it in every corner of the world and translate it so that it can become part of the consideration set, why wouldn't you do that, right? So. So we're looking at those sorts of things and how they can affect the capacity to do what we do much better and offer a much better solution. But we won't make that decision. We'll take that to the people to decide. So the, re uh, the biggest challenge is, um, is volume. Volume for us started with a few decisions. So the first decision is we decided to go with a web app before we went with, an, with a phone app, a mobile app. Now, the mobile app will be available soon, but we wanted to make sure more people can access via the internet on a computer than they can on a phone around the world. Not people like us, because all of us have phones, and so it wouldn't have made any difference. But for indigenous communities and low socioeconomic communities, they don't necessarily have phones. And they're the people that most need to be part of this conversation. So the last thing you want to do is create a model that doesn't, in, in fact, give them an opportunity. So, so that's why we started with a web app. The intent is um, to grow through partnerships. So some of those partnerships are obvious about getting out to as many people as we can. So uh, many of you will know that we have a partnership with the FYA, which is the Foundation for Young Australians. They are the representative major advocacy group for young people in this country. Um, and we have a working contract with them to make sure that young people engage in politics and decisions that affect their lives. That relationship will be replicated with Rotary, citizen, you know, the Australian senior, Seniors Group, all sorts of other groups across the community to make sure that we have access to lots of people and people understand that there is an alternative to the system that they're using. But equally, the kind of partnerships that we're looking at are libraries, the post office. There's a post office in every suburb in the country. If there is a computer terminal that people can vote, everybody has access. So they're the sorts of things that we're starting to look at. One of the things we're going to do from a philanthropic perspective, um, I would think late this year or early next year, will be a donor package option so that people who want to don donate money can donate a voice. So effectively what it means is, if we know that there is an indigenous community in Arnhem Land that has no computer access or Wi-Fi, we would, for example, say, here's a $2,000 crowd-funded solution for that community and it will build a solar-powered Wi-Fi unit that will lead to a computer terminal that the community can then do whatever it wants with when it's not voting but it can now vote. So there are little things like that which is about making sure access is available but they're also the conversation. Access is a conversation we're having um, 
in Silicon Valley at the moment with a whole lot of the biggest players because they've had to deal with the very same issue. And so it's about what are the best of breed doing at the moment and how do we fit into that conversation. So first of all, everybody's got to feed their family. People there have to feed their family, people here have to feed their family. Um, the places that we're finding the most interest Actually, South America is like going crazy, but um, like really going crazy. Yeah. So I mean, I, you know, Pia and, and Santino. Like I know them. I speak to Santino all the time. And um, and and what's happening in South America is a really good example of of how this can start to work. Yeah. Um, but it, some of the poorest places in the world are the places who most need it, and are the ones that want it the most. They're saying, you know, Bolivia is an example. The Bolivians call me every three days because at the end of the day, they're going our our system is completely corrupt and we have to bring a model that takes the corruption out of the system and every country needs it for different reasons and wants it for different reasons i agree the, the having the time to do it it's the same issue here most people don't give a shit about politics here that's the reality you know the people in this room care we're engaged we know what's going on we read the paper we're interested in facts for most people they're just trying to put food on the table. They're just trying to get the kids to school. They're just trying to pay the mortgage or, or rent for that matter, you know? Um, so it, that's why we're trying to do it as quickly and as short and as sharp as possible. It's why we're gonna to go to video so it's easier to consume. Um, it's why we're going to do it in ways that take out, um, let me say it in a different way. We are making UX a huge consideration in everything that we do. So it has to be something that people recognise adds value to them. If the experience is slow and it drops out and it's too complicated and they don't know which button to push and they don't have time and nobody's ever going to do it. If it's quick and it's easy and it makes them feel good, then they're going to keep coming back to it. And so it's about the experience. And that's why a lot of the people that we've hired on the tech side of our business are UX experts. So our head of technology, um, Jamie Skeller, is one of the founding partners of Contact Light, which created the Embark app, which is the number one app in the app store. He's all about UX. That's what he knows. He knows how to create experiences digitally that get people using. You know, the people that we're talking in Silicon Valley are talking about gamification. Now, not, no, no, it, it sounds crazy, but we're not talking about gamification like, here, collect 10 points because you voted. But, you know, yeah. And so we're, so we're looking at that right now. And it's not about, so the, uh, and I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. The guys that built our first app, so we use B2 Cloud, which is one of the best app building companies in, in Australia. Um, they do all the, you know, Virgin and NAB and big enterprise level apps. And I've known the boys for a long time and I've worked with them before and I know they do great work, which is why we went to them. Um, one of the two partners came to me very early on. I've known him for 15 years. And he said, Ad, you know, we're really excited about this and we really believe in what you're trying to do, but I hate politics. I'm completely disengaged. As soon as politics comes on the news, I turn the channel. I don't read it in the paper. And my wife's the same way. We're just completely disinterested. Now, they have the luxury of being disinterested because they're rich white people. But the reality is that he's saying, how, what happens if you convince me, great marketing, new idea, but because I'm into tech, I'll give something a try. I turn up, I go to the app, I vote on something, the frame that I want loses, and now what do I do? Now, now I've tried something that I didn't want. I hate the, the environment anyway because it's polit political and I feel like I lost. And so that was what started the gamification conversation. And how do we do it so that losing or being part of a minority doesn't alienate you from constant participation? And so we're looking and addressing those issues all the time. And sometimes it's little things, just like getting a note that says, hey, 
you know, you voted for frame C and, you know, frame A was the winning frame, it had 90%, but don't feel bad because 111,000 people voted exactly the same way that you did. Oh, and then the next iteration of ours isn't just going to be the voting to the side of that, but not in the same place, we're going to build a social community. So you can start talking to people about these issues and debating them and actually arguing them and creating your own groups. Now that won't take place in the place where the vote happens, but now you're actually forming ideological communities, which is fine, that's your democratic right. But what is a democratic requirement is to vote in a way that is non-ideological in terms of the structure of the system. So, there, I mean, the, we've got a, a dialogue, anybody who feels like driving by our office right now, you'll see it on the, we should probably move it actually, since you can see it from the street, but we've got a, um, a big digital poster that's up that we've been working on, which are kind of like 40 new technological iterations, which are about social information provision, AI, um, funding, crowdfunding, advocacy, a whole range of other things. And that's kind of our technological roadmap. But you don't take big donations. No, we do take big donations. We don't take corporate donations. Corporate donations. The, in fact, the bigger donation, the better. better. <laughs> <laughs> Which you can do through the website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, look, it, it's, it's a self-created problem, um, but it's a really important one. So uh, if we are trying to be genuinely democratic, and if we are, as I tend to, lecturing to the political parties about how to behave and how not to behave, it would be entirely disingenuous of us yep. to do the very thing that is eroding their ability to make good decisions by doing it ourselves. Now, we understand that it makes our job significantly more difficult, mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, it kind of, it's that question when people get to see a better model and they see it work, and you know, if we had a million members who all gave us a dollar a month, that's it. We're the biggest, we're the financially the biggest political party in this country by a million miles. So it, the question is, what price your voice? And that's a question we'll start asking people when we're a little bit bigger. Um, but we think that there's a case in the same way that, that Wikipedia has, that says people will value and contribute to things that add to their w place in the world. Um, and if they believe in the outcome and they believe in the model and they think that it's pure, um, they'll be there to help support it. And that to me, even though it's a sort of pushing shit uphill at times, is a, is a better position to be than to let the coal lobby or the union walk in the front door and go, we'll give you three million bucks, but we want policy to look like this, or we want there to be a frame that says X. We're just not for sale. Um, we'll never be for sale. And so, and so you know, just, and, and I'll, I'll tell you how that plays out. So, was just in the States, sat down with a reasonably well-known billionaire who I was told um, in advance of the meeting, do not ask for money under any circumstances. So I, I did not ask for money, but I was told that if the question is put to you, how much do you need, be very frank about that. So the question after about an hour and a half did come up and it was okay. And there was lots of really robust um, conversation in this particular individual is very politically aware and involved and has personally spent about 120 odd million dollars of his own money on political causes that he believes in. Um, so the real deal and pose the question. So what do you guys need? Um, to which there was an answer. Uh, and after the answer about the, the volume of the generosity I was looking for, um, it was followed with, but understand that whether you give me a dollar or you give me a hundred million dollars, your name is going to be on the website with the amount of money that you provided, and that's not negotiable. And if that means you're not going to give us anything, then you're not going to give us anything. So uh, that's just how we roll.
they have no access to the policy team. Nobody has access to the policy team. Yeah, but and I can tell you, I've got two donors who are super <laughs> pissed off with me about the last two votes. Really good question. Really good question. We combat it in two ways. Uh, and there'll be a third coming, but two ways. Um, the first thing that we do is, um, now this isn't live now, because it doesn't make sense when you're in startup, it would mean nobody could vote. So, but in about, um, well, I think when we hit a threshold um, of members, a particular number of members that we kind of have in our head, we'll turn this on. And the intent is that when you sign up, so let's say somebody tries to mobilize you and says, hey, I want you to come. So I'll get the event, the, the one I give, and I apologize for anybody if this offends you, but I'm gonna say it anyway, because it's just who I am. Um, so as an example, um, marriage equality. Let's say we put marriage equality up, and let's say people got wind of this vote, and let's say the church started saying to all of its members, join up right now and vote, you know, whatever the frame that looks like, no, vote for that one, yeah? Um, we will turn on a mechanism that means that when you sign up for the first time because your priest asked you to, or your friend who is a donor asked you to, or your friend in the coal lobby, or your unionist mate, or whoever asks you to, your first time there, you will be able to participate, get the information packs, play with all of the bits and pieces, but you won't be able to vote for the first vote. You have to miss the first one and go to the second one. So you get to learn how it works and play with it, but we restrict you from making a vote. The second thing that we do is we never pre-publish anywhere. The biggest secret in our office is what the next vote is. So only the policy team knows what it is. I don't normally know until the board has to sign it off. So the process, that's how the process is meant to work. So that um, only the few people who are working on the policy frames know what it is and they are sworn to secrecy so that nobody can know. And if you don't know what's coming, then it's very hard to mobilise a force for something that you might have to wait three years for. The other thing is, because we're not doing binary um, legislative votes, and this is where all of our contemporaries fall down for that risk. If you are doing what a lot of others do, which say, hey, we built an app and we're going to ask you to vote on the legislation. Do you support the legislation or do you not support the legislation? And we're really democratic because we're gonna do whatever the majority wants. 51%, 50.1%. What then happens is if you get wind of what that vote is, and I have a vote on a piece of legislation and I can get enough just to get over the line, I am now bound as a party to enact that will. What we do is because you don't know what it's gonna be, because our threshold is 60%, not 50.1%, because we're not talking about legislation, we're talking about destination, which means that there's nuance in how we deal with policy. You're about three steps removed from having a direct impact from the legislation itself. And that's the way that the community should be involved in a democracy. It shouldn't be reading thousand page pieces of legislation with an expectation that everybody can do that, has the time to do that, wants to, I don't want to do that. And I'm obsessed with politics, right? But, but I do want to have a say on where I think the country should go. And if we expect politicians to represent our will, then what we're asking is to change the roles. So we're not saying that representative democracy shouldn't exist. We're saying that the nature of the representative should be reimagined. And if your job as a politician is to enact the direction, so it's kind of like the people are the board, we decide where the company goes, and the executives are the politicians who are held accountable to delivering that outcome. 
And if you don't deliver what the people want, then we're going to remove you at the next election, which is why we're not running for the lower house, we're running for the Senate. We are the check and balance. So when the legislation comes to the Senate, we can look at it and go, does it meet the destinational outcome that the majority of Australians want, our members want? And if it doesn't, we will never support it. And if it does, we always will support it. And it's unlike what we have now. And so even though, for example, I personally am left, what you saw recently is the Greens do a deal with the Liberal Party um, to support a bill by negotiating $100 million for forestation in Tasmania. This happened about three or four months ago. Independent of the fact that I agree with the 100 million and where it's spent, that was fundamentally undemocratic. Because what you had was a deal done on the side that the public never supported, was never asked about. Nobody knew whether or not the public wanted that 100 million spent in that way. And this is, a, this is another fallacy of the system. We ex we the more we have all of these independents, which is an interesting point for later, but the more you have independents who are ideologically driven. So you've got the Liberal Democrats, you've got Xenophon, you've got One Nation, you've got Hinch. They're all there because they stand for a particular thing. You may agree with some of them, you may disagree with some of them. That's your right, democracy, right? But when you start having people say, and we're hearing it more and more, I'm not going to support, we heard Hanson do it just last week, I'm not going to support the budget unless you cut the funding for the ABC. I reckon that's a fucking conversation for the electorate, right? Because I'm pretty sure at the last election or two elections ago, a prime minister promised not to cut anything to the ABC, and that was the basis, one of the bases of him getting elected. So to now hijack a bill for your own personal ideological agenda without a conversation with the constituency is as undemocratic a proposition as you could find. And this is this is where it can't, this is the crux of the issue, right? We have and we will continue to, and as we get more and more media, and thankfully we've gone from sort of fringe media to mainstream media in the last three months, which has been nice. AFR, Two Guardian articles, Fast Company, we're kind of, we're in the mix now, we're part of the conversation. Joel does an absolutely spectacular job of making sure that me media wants to talk to us after our votes and they're curious about what people are voting for and, and, and the tide is turning, which is terrific. Um, but we will continue to challenge the opposition leader, the prime minister, Nick Xenophon, Pauline Hanson, Darren Hinch, David Lionhelm, Corey Bernardi, every single one of them to match their democratic credentials with us anywhere, anytime. And if they can show, matter-of-factly, that they represent the will of the constituency in every decision that they make, I will pack up the shop and we will go home. But until that time that they can do that, I am going to be on their ass and we are going to be chasing them down at every single election. And in and in Italy, all of them, all of them. No, we're we're three months old. <laughs> so the next federal election will be the, the the next one for us. We believe we're going to win three seats in the Senate. I think it will lead to a more self-determined society. I think it will lead to a place where ideology will be replaced by solutions orientation. I believe it will give voice to a whole group of constituents that don't have a voice. I believe um, technology will enable us to make better decisions if architected in an appropriate way. I believe that no individual should feel that they have a birthright to power and make, to make decisions on behalf of other people. Nobody has that right. You know, I live with a really simple philosophy, which isn't a my vote philosophy. It's kind of, it's just something I live with, which is that I'm better than no one and no one is better than me. We're all just equal.
Yeah, We all have our own experiences, we all have our own journey. What's important is that the system supports each of us to be able to take our own journey and doesn't disadvantage any of us in any way by virtue of how we were born and where we were born. What religion we were born into, what we, what we believe, who our sexual partner is, what colour our skin is. None of those things matter, right? Do I think it can make a difference? I think it will make a massive difference. But if I was a betting person, and I'm not because I'm anti-gambling, but if I were a betting person, I would bet that it will make a difference in other countries before it will make a difference in Australia. Um, I have a lot of friends who are politicians. Well, they're not anymore, I guess. They used to. I, for a long time, they were really good friends. Um, and they come from state and federal, left and right, um, both representatives and in the executive branches of government. Um, at the very early days, four or five years ago, they were part of the conversation because they, I would, I'd ask questions, well, how does this work? And I've got an idea that we might be able to do this. And that, they didn't see us as a threat in any way and we weren't real and, and so, and then all of a sudden we got the, hmm, what's going on over there? They seem to be mobilizing some conversation. And then it got to, what do you mean somebody's given them a million dollars in donations? And, and then it became, what do you mean the Guardian's writing about them again? What do you mean they've got a thousand people who just took the first vote? And so now all of a sudden we're a problem. Um, what's been really curious, and I don't say this publicly very often, and maybe I shouldn't, no, I'll say it. Um, what was really interesting about, what, what was really interesting about being in America on my last trip, um, and we had about 40 meetings in six or seven days. It was a really intense, incredible trip. And we met unbelievable people, amazing. Um, lots of household names that all of you would know. Um, and in at least 50% of the meetings that I attended, we were specifically warned about the dangers that we face now. So some of those dangers were physical, some of those dangers were digital, cyber, some of those da dangers were legal. So I had a very knowledgeable insider say to me, you don't need to worry about anybody shooting you, you don't need to worry about cyber attacks, although they'll come. Um, what you need to worry about is you're going to turn up to some country that nobody's heard of to put democracy in and you'll get arrested at the airport and nobody will ever fucking hear from you again. That's what you need to worry about. So, you know, you need to get a legal team ready. You'll get your phone call if you're in a country that allows you the phone call and you simply say, green light, Ecuador, green light, wherever the hell I am. Yeah. Um, and so they, whilst I'm not taking any of that really seriously right now because we're too small and too irrelevant right now, it's interesting and I think part of that is a byproduct of America and its sort of obsession with security and data mining and what the government does in the deep state. Um, but it's an interesting perspective that there, there may come a time when we are a threat to people who have power, you know. Um, and then it becomes really real. Uh, and nobody wants to give up power, nobody wants to cede power. I think there are, to answer your question directly, I think there are political parties right now who are looking at us and thinking that there are some things they can learn from us. So parts of the direct democracy model they probably like, parts of the way we engage technology they like, our use of blockchain, I know a couple of them are finding quite novel. Um, but I think largely they're in one of two camps. They're either patting us on the head going, that's nice, it'll never happen. Or they're on the, let's just keep an eye on them and then we'll crush them when we need to. Shall we close it there? Yeah, I think we should. <laughs> thank you so much for coming to Florence Guild. I'll see you in the next one, the 21st. And thank you so much, Adam. Thank it's you. Great. Thanks. Explore the Florence Guild podcast with the best talent from Australia and across the world. 
you can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes. For more information on Florence Guild, visit florenceguild.com.